Thanks for joining us on the MBP, the Micah Brown Podcast. I'm your host, Micah Brown, and here I want to connect you to some interesting people in an intentional way. We do that by focusing on two main things. One, focusing on the person. Everybody goes through stuff. We all have obstacles that we face. Somebody that you may walk past on a daily basis may actually be one of those incredible people and you just don't know it yet. A lot of times as Americans, we want to jump straight to what do you do for a living? And we skip right past all the personal stuff that we've been through. A lot of times we want to label that as unprofessional and I would beg to differ. I think that by being more personal, being more intentional with our conversations, we can actually get a lot more accomplished holistically as human beings. So that's what we try to focus on here. Anybody that I interview, I want to ask what obstacles they've overcome and how it's affected them. Sometimes we'll just jump straight into it without asking the actual question. Either way, when you listen to an interview on this podcast, I want you to have met somebody in an intentional way. And the second part, get to know what they do as a profession. It is part of their life after all, so why not get to know what they do? But we don't start there. We will end there. And as many of our people that we get to interview, you'll see, they actually do some pretty incredible stuff. And we don't want to miss out on that either. I hope you enjoy the show. If you do, a fantastic way to support would be to use that Audible free trial by going to audibletrial.com forward slash MBP. That's audibletrial.com forward slash MBP. That'll get you a free 30-day subscription to Audible for free 99. And if you want to keep going after that, that's up to you. Either way, that will help out this podcast continue to truck on forward, paying for all sorts of things behind the scenes that I didn't realize cost money when starting this whole thing, but they do. Nonetheless, we appreciate you guys uh, for helping us out. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Let's get to it. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing Alvin Brown and Kivon Liebert. I am intentionally interviewing them because I want to hear their stories, both personally and then also their uh, opinions of what's going on around all of us right now having to do with race relations. As I mentioned on the last episode, I aim to connect incredible people in an intentional way. And by doing that, I want to connect Alvin and Kivon to you. A lot of times what we miss out on is the humanity of everything we're going through. We want to argue about data and statistics, and we miss out on these are human beings that we're talking to. There is a uh, an increase of uh, us versus them mentality, and it's dividing us. And instead, I hope that by having Alvin and Kivon on this episode, we'll be willing to just listen and hear people out. Whether or not you agree with them, whether or not you fall on the, the same side of the line as they do, that is all secondary to just getting to know what somebody else is going through. As you'll hear in this episode, uh, Alvin has a different experience than Kivon. Kivon grew up all over the world. Uh, I'm very jealous of where he went to high school, as you'll hear. But uh, nonetheless, they have very different experiences. Both of them are married to white women, and that has had its own share of interesting obstacles and dynamics. But nonetheless, they both have some very encouraging words uh, throughout the whole interview, which... I must say is rather long. So if you're listening to this and you're like, it doesn't seem that long, it's because I've actually cut it into two different episodes and we still didn't even get through all the questions and topics that I wanted to discuss with them. So we're going to most likely have to do at least one, if not two more episodes to really get through all the material that I wanted to talk through with them. As you listen, I would ask that you listen just with open ears. That's all. 
Just listen with open ears, especially if their experience is, di- is different than yours. My experience is different than theirs, um, and you'll hear some of that. There are some similarities, but mine are very, very few to their entire life situation. Thank you. And without further ado, here are Alvin and Kivon. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me on the Micah Brown podcast. Uh, today, folks, we have, as I mentioned, uh, we have Alvin Brown. No relation, though I wish there was. And then also Kivon Liburd. Also no relation, but not even the same last name. So I wanted to, to start with saying thank you for joining me. Um, I know we're going to get into a lot of things here, just topical conversations, things that are happening around us. But before we do that, I wanted to have each of you kind of share as much or as little. It's your show. Here we go. Uh, about your story. Just where you're from, family background, childhood, college, how you met your wife, kids, job, et cetera. Not how you met your kids. I feel like we all know how you met your kids. But uh, just whoever wants to go first uh, or I can pick, but hopefully you guys can be civil on who gets to go first. First name A, last name B, going first. <laughs> there we go. Just that easy. So, yeah, so I'm Alvin Brown. So, Mike, thanks for having me on. Um, I guess uh, it goes all the way back to an early morning, Monday morning of 1980. No, just playing. I was born in 80, though. Um, October, to be exact, in terms of a date. Um, Save it, guys. We're going to remember that. Exactly. Save it. Um, get into <laughs> all my banking account information and all this other stuff <laughs> exactly i don't even what was the name of your that. first pet first pet your height and weight street you lived your first on car yeah exactly <laughs> right right so i grew up in in sherman texas which at, at then was a small town um or r- roughly a city that was roughly about 25 to thirty thousand people which today it's somewhere closing in on i guess somewhere like thirty nine thousand, almost fifty thousand, somewhere between that between that mark um but grew up grew up in a household i'm the youngest of four um you know grew up in a christian household grandfather was a pastor and matter of fact um my so my dad's dad and my mom's dad actually uh were in the same quartet group uh when they were younger um and obviously they parted ways went their ways but then obviously our families came back together and for good um, and so that being said, so I, you know, I just grew up in a, in a middle-class working family, um, lived in South Sherman, which it was to say the least, I mean, it was a melting pot of, of everybody. You had folks who were, uh, middle-class working families, mostly black, um, Hispanic, uh, white. We were just all together, if you will. Um, and so growing up was was just interesting. I can remember probably one of my first experiences with race was um, having an older white male call me the N-word uh, at the age of five. Um, and so, you know, not necessarily knowing what to do with that, it, it that kind of just- did you, even set, know what, did you even know what that word meant at five? It, no. And so I don't think, I don't know that you actually know what it means, but- in terms of how it's said and how someone's actions are towards you, you get the drift that that's not good. And there's something that he didn't like about me. Um, yeah. And so that, that kind of just set the stage, but at the same time, you know, my parents um, did well in terms of coaching me. 
And so everywhere we went, there was always a coaching session of, hey, we're about to go in here. The, and, and they kind of laid out what could happen. And, and so it was almost kind of role play before we actually went into uh, the game. So very much almost like, uh, and Kevon can probably relate to this, obviously being a coach in terms of going through practice. You go through practice, why? Because in the game, you just want it to be natural. And so it was the same thing. My parents coached me on, you know, hey, what to do in certain situations. And so they also coached me on early on realizing that it's likely due to academics that you're going to be the only black person in the class. And so for the most part, in terms of just growing up, I've, I've had to assimilate you know, to an all white world predominantly. Um, and then fast forward through, you know, middle school, grade school, uh, junior high, high school into uh, college, I landed um, into uh, DeVry University. And so majored in telecom management. So I have a bachelor's of science in, in uh, telecommunications management, but it put me working basically at a fortune uh, 500 company that was roughly around about $2 billion. And so you walk in at the age of 19 and um, the only other black person there is like a vice president of human resources, but everybody else is white. Um, and so my first boss, he was actually an immigrant. So that's the only, <laughs> I guess you'd say minority relation that we, relationship that was shared was um, him being an immigrant and me uh, being a person of color. But you, you just kind of learn to, to how you, you must adapt if you're going to survive. And so it, it, it puts you at a, um, at an interesting crossroad because there's, you're always going to relate to the culture in which you came from, but you also are having to assimilate to a culture that was never truly meant for you, um, if you will. And so that's kind of, you know, me in a nutshell. Now, obviously today in terms of uh, today, um, I'm married to uh, my wife, Mallory Brown, and we've been married uh, 10 years now. We have three kids um, that are seven and Pretty much by the time this recording airs, um, our other two will have had birthdays, and so they will be six and four. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, so we have three three kiddos, um, obviously living in Austin, Texas now uh, for the past, well, I've, she's been here 18, I've been here 16 years or so, and uh, attending uh, Mosaic uh, as members as well as just, I've held a number of positions at Mosaic. Um, most recently it's the pastor of guest experience as well as senior technology advisor. And so, yeah, so that's, that's me in a nutshell. That was, that was very good and nice and linear. Um, also I, with your background, I can't imagine why you'd be the senior technology advisor. Yeah. Keeping things going, <laughs> keeping things going. March 15 hit. And, uh, as a friend once told me, he says, Hey man, not that you weren't doing anything before, but you went from, uh, basically from nothing to essential in a matter of three days, uh, with COVID. So, and that, yeah. that is the truth. And I, I know that you're not the only one that has experienced that, uh, throughout this entire process, man, that's a, that's a cool upbringing. I would, I would love to ask with, just your your background and everything um you, you mentioned assimilating what if you could just kind of expand on that what does that look like practically for maybe i mean even myself who hasn't ever experienced having to assimilate outside of just friend circles you know 
so what does that look like in a professional setting or even in a personal setting? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just, you know, certain things there. So we often tend to be blind just because we, we, t- we typically live life from our lens. So what we do is just kind of normal to us. Um, and so we don't take, for instance, and it's, and it's until you get outside of your own scope. So, you know, you, if I took, if I took Micah Brown to, um, let's just say greater Mount Zion Baptist church, or even, um, St. James Baptist church here in Austin, that's going to feel way different than a mosaic church. Um, and it's not that it's right or wrong. It's just a different expression of culture. And so you're always running into just different expressions of culture. So, you know, for instance, um, I can remember very early on, you know, folks would comment on dress and it would be subtle things. So it's not that they were being malicious as much as it was just being unaware of, oh, you dress nice for a black guy. And you're like, what? You're like, well, ho- for- ho- wait. <laughs> you could just say I dress nice. I mean- <laughs> right. You, you could have just said I dress nice. And so you don't know whether to say thank you or you're like, wait a minute. And then you're trying to really figure out, is this person, um, is this someone who is subtly jabbing you and, and trying to basically put you in your place, if you will, or are they just truly unaware? In most cases that I recognize, there, there have been a few I can count them on hand situations where someone was just, um, that was just their bin and they felt, you know, uh, I guess fearful or they felt intimidated um, just by my presence. In most cases, it's been that folks have, have been unaware. So it's things like the way someone dresses, uh, the way someone's, uh, the bigger thing is like hair. And I know black women can testify to this in terms of, oh, it's not even let me touch your hair. In most cases, they just reach out and grab. And like, hey, yeah. you're kind of like, hold on, don't do that. Um, and I mean, I've just... actually experienced that one. Uh, I, I remember vividly where I was, so I can at least relate to that one. I was in St. Louis at the Arch and this Middle Eastern woman, I have no idea where she was from, but by the way, the way she was dressed and everything, I'm just standing there looking at something and, uh, in the gift shop and I just feel this hand and I had much more blonde hair then. I just feel this hand reach out and grab my hair and I was like, I'm sorry, what? Just... And she said, oh, you have beautiful hair. And I was like, thank you don't touch me. You know, I, I had to be only like nine years old or something, but I was so confused. I went and told my mom and she died laughing and she's just like, well, where she's from, they probably don't have a lot of people with blonde hair. So you're the anomaly. Congratulations. You know? I was like, man, that was weird. Invasion of privacy. Don't touch me. You know? I don't even know you stranger danger. Exactly. Exactly. And so you had, you had things like that, or you have, uh, I remember one time we had a spread at work of, uh, it was like a lunch deal and someone had made a comment, there's no fried chicken. And so you, you kind of like, okay, really? Man, I know. You're like, really? And so it's those things of assimilating to a white world or taking it personal. Um, now, before I tell the story, let me, let me preface this to say my mother-in-law and I are on way better terms than where <laughs> we started at the time that this happened. But it was, it was coming into a family that had, I mean, the, the blackest thing that they saw were, were their shadows. 
Um, and so that just kind of lets you know they they were from they hail from Alabama. So everything that you can actually just think of, and then enter Alvin Brown with all of his blackness into the family. Um, and it was the first time that my wife had brought anybody home. But one of the things I, c- I can remember in terms of assimilating, it was kind of like, well, my mother-in-law, she asked the question, well, what does he eat? And so it's, it's kind of, Goodness. and it's like, um, I eat Chick-fil-A. I, <laughs> you know, I eat <laughs> Sonic, Burger King, you know, we have all these different things that I eat. Uh, but it was just, learn is like well do we give him chicken and watermelon or what do we give him dang uh, it's like well no we gi- give him food he is a person just like you know you but i think it, being yeah it's like i think that when we you know it's just being unaware of just certain things and so when we're tossed into the situation of, of being opposite of someone else's culture i think we go kind of shell shock and just we, we just get dumbfounded in certain instances of just not knowing what to do, what to say, and truly just how to be human and really accept the, hum- the uh, humility and humanity. Yeah, which I think is a, a big piece that people are missing frequently now is that there are other human beings that are experiencing different things than you. And instead, we, we quickly jump to this us versus them mentality. And historically, that tends to lead to civil wars, that tends to lead to violence, that tends to lead to just the mentality. So, um, and that's, that's pretty interesting. I'm even, as you're saying things, I'm thinking of one-off instances that I've experienced what you're talking about, even with like food stuff, but just a, a huge clarification that needs to take place is my one-off instances do not uh, equal your lifetime experience. So I know that why people that I'm friends with even are like, well, I've experienced this and I've experienced that. And I'm like, okay, sure. I'm not going to take away from your experiences one time, two times, something like that. Okay. But we're talking a full lifetime versus once upon a time. And those are two very different things. Kivon, I'd love to hear your story, uh, where you're from, family background, all the same things as Alvin. My name is Kevon Leibard, and I was born in New Jersey. I'm the son of two immigrants from a small island called St. Kitts and Nevis. And so my parents came to the States um, before I was born, and then my dad joined the military. So I'm an army brat, and we moved all around. We moved from New Jersey to Kansas, then to Germany, which is where I spent the majority of my childhood. Um, was there from the age of four to 17. And then my senior year, we moved to Hawaii. And so that was a big change to the opposite side of the world. And then we go to Hawaii, my dad retires from the military. And during, throughout that whole time, I was in a protective bubble, so to speak. Um, if you know anything about a military base, on a military base, you have people from all backgrounds. And everyone is on the same playing level, on the same field. There's two distinctions. There's officers and there's enlisted. But within that enlisted rank, everyone is the same. So I grew up with friends who were Asian, who were Latino, who were black, white, and everything in between. And because of that, a lot of my friends, once we came back to the States later on, didn't understand what was going on here. We lived in this world that was very different than what was going on in the States. If you think about it, nobody has any unemployment issues on a military base. Everyone literally has a job. Not only that, 
you all have health care. Like if I stub my toe, it's all right, let's go to the clinic. It was free. It didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was this world that was completely insulated. Like that was very different than what we experienced. So a lot of us came back to the States and we realized what is going on here? And I remember my parents had always talked about like trying to protect us from that, which is why we stayed in Germany for 13 years was because they realized over here, there's so much that was happening that we weren't privy to. So I come back, I graduate from school um, in Hawaii, my senior year, and then I go to What Bible a burden school. to live in Hawaii. <laughs> it, it was rough, 75 degrees every day. It never Goodness. got below like 68. That would be cold. It never got above 80. Everyone would freak out. Like it's, it was nice. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> so I go from Hawaii to Columbus, Texas, which is a small town outside of Houston. Yep. Like I, I worked outside. there. I worked there for two oh. summers at, at the Pine Cove that's in Columbus. So I know exactly where that is. <laughs> yep. There you go. So I went to a small Bible school out there for two years after I graduated from high school. And then after that, I went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you can see how my scenery changed radically within the course of a few years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, I go from a very multicultural um, background went in the military bases to Hawaii, which is, I mean, every type of ethnicity you can think of, to small town Texas and then small town Oklahoma. It was, it was a culture shock to say the least. So. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> there I met my wife, Katie. Um, she's actually from Texas. She's from a small town um, called Del Rio. It's on the border. And um, we met there. And it's interesting because Although she is white, the town that she grew up in is 85% Hispanic. So she grew up as a minority in her town, and she actually found it weird to be around white people all the time. She's like, there are a lot of white people here in Oklahoma. That's, that's an interesting <laughs> dichotomy of, of brain, like just splitting your brain, like, I'm used to this, but society's telling me I should be used to this. And that doesn't feel exactly normal right. to me. Yeah. Yes, the society saying that people look at her like, but you're white, so you should feel comfortable here. <laughs> so yeah. needless to say, we um we went to school there all four years. We graduate, get married, and move to the Dallas area, and then we lived there for two years. I started coaching football and teaching. I taught chemistry um, and coached and was athletic director for twelve years, and then so I did that there for two years. Then we moved to our hometown for two years as well. And then after that, we moved to Austin and we've been here for 10 years now. And throughout that entire time, I've had a lot of um, experience seeing the difference in how you can be treated because of your race um, throughout those years. So growing up when I was younger, we all were in this bubble where we all got along great and we were all friends and things were really good for all of us. And then I got to Bible school in Columbus, Texas, years later, it was the first time I heard, man, you, you talk white, or I'm, I'm blacker than you, or I'm, you know, you're not black because you like such and such. So it's, it's, they add all these stereotypes to you, which they see, and then they apply them to you. Yet, at the same time, you get the jokes that Alvin got about fried chicken and Kool-Aid and watermelon. So I'm like, wait, not black enough or too black? Which one is it? Like, can we go back and forth? And, you know, Alvin talked about this earlier. There are people that are ignorant. They just don't know what they're saying. And there's people that do it on purpose. Either way, they are still affecting you. You know, and that's when I first learned about microaggressions. Yeah. 
I didn't know how to term it. You know, I didn't know what that was called. And these were all microaggressions, whether or not they meant it. Each one was like a paper cut. And it just, it just keeps happening. Every time someone mentions something about chicken or watermelon or whatever, it's a paper cut. And what sucks is that you can't really do anything about it, especially if you like it. Like, this is the thing. I love fried chicken. And there's watermelon <laughs> in my fridge right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you know what soda? There's only one soda that's in my house right now, and it's orange soda. Like, you know, so you're playing up these stereotypes where you're like, am I allowed just to be? Am I allowed to be me, yeah. allowed to be human, or are you going to use that against me? And every time you try to use that against me to attack me, that's not right, you know? So yeah. I went through this whole thing like Alvin. I mean, we could talk about microaggressions and assimilations all day, and I bet me and Alvin could probably bounce stories <laughs> off back and forth about that. But assimilation is basically the name of the game when you're Black in America and you're not in an all-Black environment which is most of the time. Like, unless you like grew up in one and stayed there and never left, you are not protected like that. And you're always assimilating. And it takes a lot to try to not do that. But it's like, you know, Alvin said, if he took you and dropped you somewhere else, you know, in a different country, you'd be like, okay, crap, I gotta figure this out. I gotta, yeah. I gotta figure out how do I survive here? What do I learn? What customs do I adapt? What, what, how do I change my talk? And that's exhausting at times, but um, we've learned to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, the only thing I can even relate to with that would be um, on our honeymoon, we went to the Dominican Republic and I actually can speak a decent amount of Spanish uh, enough to actually get by and, and get through stuff. And since that experience, I've now realized two things. One, exactly what you just said it is exhausting when you are not naturally part of a culture and you're trying desperately to figure out like how do i fit in without totally losing myself and we were, we were there for a week so i i can only imagine you zoom that out to more than a week it gets tiring um and then on top of that you start to feel like you're losing a part of yourself like who yes. in this case who is micah i like wearing workout clothes constantly so even being in a business setting I get worn down. Man, I got to put on another tie. I get hot. I don't like things around my neck. My head gets hot first before anything else on my body does. Like this is exhausting. And I know these are very minuscule things. I'm just trying to make the point that what I may be experiencing as like, oh, this is tough. Again, a very minor part of my life. Um, and even with uh, the language barrier, one of my friends, I think last week, maybe the week before, brought up the fact that you may be talking to someone who has English as their second language and because they can't speak English, the natural inclination is to assume that they're uneducated or assume that they're somehow less than from one degree to another because they can't clearly communicate in English where and you flip the script. I'm in the DR. I can barely speak enough Spanish to understand where we're even getting taken in this car. We're supposed <laughs> to be going to this little, you know, catamaran or whatever then all of a sudden we get pulled over on the side of the road and he's like oh we're waiting for another car i'm sorry this is how bad movies start like don't tell me that but i've got a master's degree i've got two degrees from a big university and yet because i can't even communicate to this guy he's looking at me like i'm some poor white guy like oh you just stay over there or we're gonna just put you in the trunk you know just stop talking so to me i felt very minor 
examples of, of what you both are talking about. And I can only imagine, you know, going over the course of your life, how that can, like you said, paper cuts build up. I, I just imagine, as you said, this is a paper cut. That's a paper cut. I'm just imagining one paper cut in the same exact spot over and Ooh. over, man, yeah. that's going to hurt and get deep fast. May as well yeah. have gotten a knife out. So, yeah. And I don't know that it's, it, it, it it's really paper cuts all over that are getting hit. I mean, it, we're into multiples now, multiple times. Yeah. And it, it's funny because I thought, as you were saying, um, when you talked about putting on, going into a business environment and putting on a suit, like there are days that assimilating has become so tired. I feel like I, there are, I love being black. I didn't choose to be black, but I so love it that God gave me this gift. But there are days that I'm so tired that I wish that I could literally take off my blackness, put it on a hanger, put it in a closet and live life with less, you know, less uh, complications. That's a a unique experience. And I I hope the people who are listening to this pause and think about that. Um, Yeah, it's so difficult. It's something that um, I know that as a kid, I wondered many times, how easy is it to be white? Like, you know, not to try to make anyone feel bad about that. Correct. I remember just thinking one time, like, man, white kids can do whatever they want. Now, this is coming from a kid who loves sci-fi. I'm a nerd. Mm-hmm. I love watching sci-fi, reading sci-fi. I, I'm a chemistry teacher. Yeah. yeah. And so being a blurred right now is a cool thing. You could be a blurred right now. But... <laughs> You're talking 25 years ago, it wasn't this accepted thing. People looked at you funny because of that. And I'm like, man, it must be nice for white kids to do whatever they want. If they want to be skater kids, they can be skater kids. If they want to be nerds, they can be nerds. If they want to, you know, dress funky, they can do that. But man, black kids, we are put in a box. You have to be this way. And if you're not, then you're strange or you're white. Yep. That's what you're considered. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's a lot, y'all. Take, that, take those expectations off of us. And just real quick, for those of us that are uninformed and ignorant, a blurred is a black nerd? Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. I heard you say that, and I was like, okay, put it together real fast. What is he saying? Yeah. <laughs> I apologize. Got it. Yes, a black nerd, yes, a blurred. <laughs> and, of course, on this episode, it's like, I, I know both of you, so you may say something or, or intentionally not say something, thinking like, oh, Micah knows this, like, so whatever. But plenty of other people might be listening to this, so we got to make sure we define terminology when, we, when we're talking. Um, I wanted to ask just, I, I know we, we gave the overview and kind of the run through real quick, uh, before we move on to kind of some topical conversation, uh, I wanted to ask about just one event and then as much detail as you want to get into, that's up to you, but one event in your life that helped to shape your character and how, of course the how is, you know, where we can connect with you on a, a much more personal level, but, but one event in your life that helped to shape your character and how Alvin I guess you went first so you may as well you know a b go again oh, man one event oh that would that was just one we got to give Kevon some time to talk to you know yeah <laughs> one event um that was quite pivotal I think I think for me uh there was a pastor um his name was Jeff Reed and he had a daughter by the name of Brooklyn Reed. Um, and we're still friends to this day, but they, they lived around the corner. It was all white church, um, first Avenue Baptist church. So that just kind of gives the, the name. 
um, in Sherman, Texas. You can probably still look him up. But uh, he took a liking to me. And it was interesting because I remember going to the church and there would be looks of, you know, kind of like, who's the black kid? Um, but he treated me as one of his own. Uh, and so it's it's interesting to have a, a pastor that is in the mid to late 80s, um, you know, taking to uh, a black kid who we basically met, you know, his daughter and I, we met in kindergarten. We were in the same class until she was in third grade until they moved away. But that changed for me the course of of um, my life just because you know, he was the one that spoke life, not that my parents didn't speak life, not that other people didn't speak life, but he was the one that was truly like, hey, you can overcome this. You can actually go out and do anything that you want to do in life. Now, that was what he spoke. Now, obviously, my belief is, hey, you can do anything that God has called you to do in life, but the reality of yes. him speaking life over me um, as a white male, uh, you know, to, to a black child that, that was life-giving for me. Yeah, man, I think that's um, really cool. If you're boiling it down to one example, that's so hard. Um, but there's also a white man <laughs> that was involved in my life. Uh, coach Daryl Mood, he was my basketball coach in high school and he was our defensive coordinator for football and our head basketball coach. And he, was so instrumental in me becoming a coach. Like I wanted to be like him because of the impact he made on all of our lives. And what's crazy is that he took the basketball team, which was all black kids, except for the years that my friend Robbie played. He was the only white kid on the basketball team. Um, so it's him plus everyone Love else. Robbie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so he was the only one that was on the basketball team. And his basketball team, all black and coach mood, treated us like we were kings like he didn't treat us like there was anything wrong with us and that made such a difference i never heard one racial slur from that man i never heard anything that spoke down to my blackness that made me feel less than and i've heard that from other coaches i've heard that working with coaches as a coach myself i've heard that yep. about me as a coach I but i too. never heard that uh, it's crazy that's right you uh, weren't coaching yeah. you, 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 yeah. you know the coaching world i was a coach <laughs> out in elgin you know it, it, it's not that far from austin but yet it's a very different world and so you you i worked with black coaches hispanic coaches white coaches and still people just say things and i've even said things yeah. unintentionally not real not realizing that what i just said was just a, a stab in the side of my my friend who is another coach and i went and tried to apologize to him i was like i i swear to you i wasn't i didn't say that with any intention i just said it didn't even think that, that i had a different connotation for you yeah it's, a, it's that exact thing and now looking back even more so i am so grateful that he wasn't like that like if he was different then i don't think i would have ever got into coaching um it really made a difference for him not being that way so i really appreciate that that's great uh that's awesome um b yeah having been a coach i i definitely can resonate with that mentality of like having coaches to then mold you and shape you and make you want to be that same person for others that's awesome thank you guys for sharing both of that um okay so i want to transition here into 
uh, more of a topical conversation. It's no surprise that uh, at the time of this recording, and I say that because I hope that there's a day when somebody listens to this and goes, what were they even talking about? Um, I want to get into more of the topical situation of, of what we're all experiencing right now in America. Uh, and it has then bled into other countries around the world, which is really crazy and cool to think about. Um, as I've said on our podcast, as I've said, um, even in my own personal life, there's always going to be extremes to any subject, any topic. And unfortunately, the people who are loudest are the one who get the ones who get the most attention. And typically that's from media that can be from somebody then taking an article and posting it to social media. Uh, that could be the one who is the topic of conversation frequently. And in my experience, knowing both of you, but knowing other people who are black, those extremes actually don't represent, uh, they don't represent me. They don't represent you, but instead we're, we're seeking to have more of a dialogue of like, Hey, you know, the things that have been mentioned are actually happening. So what can we do to change that? So that's where I want to, I want to bring this conversation. I want to start with uh, a question. I say we just keep the same order. Alvin, you can go first, keep on, uh, go after Alvin just to keep things organized. Uh, not that Alvin is better than Kevon, he just has a better last name. So uh, let's start with <laughs> that, uh, that host bias, Micah Brown and Alvin Brown sticking together. All right. First question would be, do either of you have stories of times you've been treated unjustly, abused, or treated less than, kind of on the, the lighter end of it, uh, less than simply because of your skin color? And secondly, how did those events make you feel? Man, so I can, man, countless, countless, countless times of uh, being made to feel less than just based on you know, being judged by the color of your skin and not the, you know, content or, or character of your heart. And so I think in some of those instances, like I said, it goes back and I can remember it. I can just vividly see my mother um, in a car, you know, leaning over going, okay, hey, we're going to go in here. We will not be yelling. We will sit down. We will walk. We will not run we are not going to act or give anyone the opportunity to categorize us as animals or less than human. That is what my mother would say. Um, and it just drove Gosh. the point into me that when I walk into a room, I'm the room changer. And matter of fact, I mean, your brother sings a song when you walk into the room, but he's <laughs> obviously he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Jesus <laughs> yeah. walking into the room. A little different, but right? same idea. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but same idea. But as an image bearer of Christ, when I walk into a room, things change. Um, and we understand that, that light dispels darkness. And so for me, I understood that I have to be on my P's and Q's that when I walk into a room, things can shift, things can change. Um, people's attitudes will change. And that's okay um, because I deserve to be in the room just as they do. And so it is an ability of mine to really begin to have the sixth sense or a sense for knowing when a person is uncomfortable. And so it, it's picking up on it in terms of the looks, 
and I can, I mean, and Kevon, he probably feels this as well or has known this. I can certainly tell when someone is staring at me. Yes, sir. And I know from which direction it's coming from. And I, you know, I'm like, man, if God has given me a superpower, that's it. Like I can walk into (laughs) given environments and just know at six o'clock, somebody's staring at me at three o'clock. Somebody's staring at me at 1130. Somebody's staring at me. Oh, there's three now. Or I can, you know, walk up to people and I can just tell when somebody's not into someone else or they're not into me. Um, and, And that's, you know, mm. and that's okay. Um, my wife, she's also white, and she comes from a, a town. Kid you not, go look it up, go search it. It's called Cut and Shoot, Texas. Okay. Population 1,200, 1,300 people. And so when I enter into that world, I just know you've got to be there. There is There are no days off. The only days off I get are within the confinement of the four walls of my home. So even when I go to step outside to water my lawn, flowers, I'm on. I have to be on. Um, And that's just the world that we live in. And so I just understand that um, in terms of being treated less than, that does not mean that I have to, where, where a person puts you in a box does not mean that's where you have to act or act from. Um, or yeah. live from that that space or place. Uh, just because they put you there doesn't mean that that that's where God placed you. Um, and so it's just living from within, knowing that no, I deserve to be here. Why? Because God put me here, and I'm going to be the light uh, that He's placed within me to dispel darkness. Um, doesn't always work out, but when they go low, I'm gonna go high. So, <laughs> yes, sir. I like it. What about for you, uh, Kevon? So I'm going to narrow all of mine down just to police interactions. And um, there's so many different ways we could go with this. But Mm -hmm. for me, if I I think back, what's crazy is that sometimes I think because of trauma that's done to you, you block things out. I had a friend that had to remind me of a time that she was with Katie and I. We were driving to Katie's hometown um, during a break. I think it was Thanksgiving break. And we're caravanning. So there's a couple of cars that are driving. And I'm following the flow of traffic just like everyone else, like literally in front of our friend and behind another car and I get pulled over. Well, the friend that's with us doesn't get pulled over, but they pull in right next to us and it's for speeding or whatever. I, I, to this day, I still don't know how fast I was supposedly going or what was going on. But then they have us pulled over. They make us get out the car. Now I'm like, what? I'm looking back, I'm like, what was going on? But when you're yeah. 20 or 21, and you're still naive and still really don't know what's going on in the world. You're like, okay, I'm just going to listen to the officers, not having any clue what's happening. Next thing you know, four squad cars have pulled up around us. Why? Why do we need that for just a regular traffic stop? We were just going it to ends- Thanksgiving lunch. <laughs> yes, seriously. Like, and how is it that the car I was following didn't get pulled over and the car behind me didn't get pulled over, but I got pulled over? And we were out there for at least 30 minutes as they're asking questions and interrogating and like wanting to know what was going on and where we're going. And somehow I leave with a warning. So if I leave with a warning, what was all that for? Was that intimidation? Mm -hmm. What was going on? I have no clue. Well, uh, later on, I mean, it might've been 
a year later. We're leaving Del Rio. Now, this one happened, the one I'm telling you about, I think happened in Abilene as we were going down. Later on, we're leaving Del Rio. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the checkpoints that are all along the U.S. border, about 60 yeah. miles in, right? Yeah. So people, I mean, and if you're from Texas, you recognize this. If you're not from Texas or other border <laughs> states, you might not realize that this happens, that when you cross over the border initially, there's no border patrol checkpoint there. So Katie's town is right on the other side of Mexico in here in the U.S., and back in the day, people used to flow freely between the two. You know, all you had to do was pay a dollar fifteen or whatever it was to go across the bridge, and you were go to Mexico. But once you go sixty miles into the U.S., then they have the checkpoint set up. So, I come back. I stayed the summer with Katie's family, and we are coming back. And Katie's with a friend in the car behind me. I'm in the front car, and then we loaded up all of our materials, all of our school stuff, all of our things going back to campus in the car with me. And I'm ahead of them. So we get up to the checkpoint. The car in front of us comes up. They ask a simple question. Is everyone here U.S. citizens? Everyone says yes. They don't ask for passports or nothing. That's all. Yes. And the car goes by. Like there's always done. I come up. Are you a U.S. citizen? Yes. And then where are you going? Well, I'm going to Oklahoma. Oh, really? Where are you coming from? I'm coming from Del Rio. Next thing you know, the German shepherd that's near me jumps in my window. Put his paws on the window, rolled down, is sticking his head in the car. Now, there's no drugs. There's nothing in the car but, like, computers and suitcases. And then so the Border Patrol agent leans over to his friends, and he's like, he says he's coming from Del Rio. And then so they start having this conversation <laughs> and start asking me all these questions about where I'm coming from and why I'm coming from there. Now... I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what do you think I'm doing? Stealing stuff? Because I have a computer and a TV in the backseat. Like, you're confused. So they sit there and they ask me about where I'm going to school and where I came from and all this type of stuff. And they want to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm a college student. My girlfriend's behind me. She's with her friend. Like, this is all of their stuff. I'm just holding in the car. We're driving together. They finally let me go, right? And meanwhile, Katie had pulled over to the side, so they're just waiting. So they come up behind, and they're like, are you a citizen? Yes, and wave them on. And Katie was driving, and her friend, who happens to be black, was in the passenger seat, and they're like, you know, hey, just go through. And they're like, well, wait, wait, wait. Why did you stop him, but you didn't detain us? What's the yeah. difference? And that happened constantly. I mean, it happened... Um, there was one time where, and we, we can never remember what was happening. I think Katie was driving and I was in the passenger seat. And once again, they wanted to know uh, where we were from. And my driver's license said Del Rio because I was coaching in Del Rio at that time. Uh -huh. And they were like, well, where did you go to high school? I'm like, um, not here. Honolulu High School in Honolulu, Hawaii. Like that, that's, that has nothing to do with me <laughs> living here now. What does that have to do with it? I teach at this school yeah. that you're wondering about. Like, I, I live here. Why does it matter where I went to high school? And this type of thing happens all the time. The excessive questioning, just the constant, like, wanting to know every single thing about your business. Um, one time in Oklahoma, I was put in a police car. The officer was like, here, come back and sit in the car while I run your uh, driver's license. There's no way in the world I would do that now. No way in the world. And he made me sit next to him in the car left katie in the car up front and while he's running it i'm like what would happen if some if something went down right now this is before body cam days nobody would know why am i in this car why is he asking me to get in this car with him this does not feel right these instances i 
like I'm telling you, I just named like four or five of them. There's so many with just interactions with the police. And thank God, nothing happened. I came out unscathed. But the fact that I am fearful, every time I get pulled over, is not right. Like my wife gets pulled over and she'd go off on a cop. She'd be like, no, I didn't do that. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I can't say any of that. Right. Yeah. He knows that, you know? And it's, it's, it's crazy. Those are the things that everyone would love, just not to be fearful or not to feel like you get a different set of interrogation rules than other people. It's, it's a lot. Mm. It's, I mean, even just listening to it, I'm like, man, I've been pulled over a handful of times, even pretty serious uh, stuff. Like I <laughs> probably shouldn't admit, I already did my, you know, <laughs> punishment and everything. Uh, I didn't go to jail for this. I should have. Um, and I will admit that. I did 98 in a 55 construction zone after my legal curfew with an expired driver's license. And the cop walked up to my window laughing because he was like, he looks at me, he goes, you know, you should go to jail right now. Right. And that was before I even saw that my license was expired. And he like sees my license. He goes, son, how long have you been driving? I said, three months. He goes, well, is this your first ticket? I said, yeah. He goes, you really went bigger and went home. I mean, that's, that is a, <laughs> this one's going to count. And even with that, like, I'm just imagining like he had more than enough reason to take me to jail, to like hit me with a big fine right there. Like have me like call my parents or something. I mean, any number of things. And yet you're the one that's pulled over and questioned for just, in my opinion, the stupidest stuff. Yeah. So oh, like yeah, none of those, none of those are tickets. All the ones I told you about, there were no tickets. Like, Which makes me think about how people, you know, well, the stats say and the, the statistics and the information and it's like, okay, but what about the things that are not recorded, that are not written there's down? There's no record. Right. Yes. There's no yeah. record of it. Yeah. So that just, no, I, but that's, but I, I mean, that's the thing that we, that we see though, like, and I tell, so when I get in these types of conversations, I tell people from the beginning of time, like, if if streets if roads if trees grass all could talk and tell you of all the stories of things that they've witnessed of people losing lives wow. oh my goodness what a story that would be told and so you look at today's climate of where we stand in terms of all that's going on we're talking about police brutality we're talking about just any and everything that's related to racism. And the one thing that I mentioned is that a lot of people are like, well, racism is getting worse. And I'm like, no, racism is not getting worse. <laughs> racism has been there. It's just being recorded on devices. True. Now. 100% I go, true. it's being recorded. And that's the thing that is so surprising uh, that's starting to wake a lot of people up is the simple fact. I'm like, no, this stuff has been happening. It's just the fact that in our hands, we're getting news stories in a matter of an instant. Whereas before, you may not, it may not have even made the local news. Yeah. And you yeah. just never would have known about it. And it would have been, you know, oh man, it was a great day in Mayberry. Well, it probably was, but outside of Mayberry, people are losing their lives. And so it's that yeah. same, it's that same thing of, of just like, nothing is being recorded but yet damage is being done i mean it just even keep on talking about sitting in the the front seat with that officer right. makes me think about the kids that were just like kicked in the front seat 
And the yeah. only reason that was even brought up was because somebody across the street had their cell phone out and was recording it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to me, I'm like, well, shoot, if something had happened with Kivon, then that would have never, no one would have ever known. Katie no. could have tried to say something. Somebody else that maybe was a witness could have tried to say something, but ultimately how much, how much would have that mattered? But now you have somebody who is being assaulted in a front passenger seat of a cop car where Kivon has sat, not the same cop car, of course, but figuratively speaking, you've sat in that same seat, but he's being kicked. And the reason we're finding out about it is because someone had a cell phone. Yeah. Crazy enough. It was, though. it was, it was while what we were in. It was the same city. It was while we were in college in Tulsa, you know? Right. So. No way. Yes. I mean, <laughs> and, okay, speaking I'm of, laughing because it's ridiculous. At it. I'm not laughing because like downplay anything. I'm just saying like, what the heck you're in the same city and that's why i'm laughing well, it's just that part of that is also like history so we lived in tulsa for four years went to college in tulsa and never heard about the tulsa massacre i learned about this after i left i didn't know about black wall street which is something that we all should have known about this isn't taught in the history books like there are so many history. different yeah. things it, yeah there's so many it's things not a that take we, or anything i mean it's not it's not something in there that you should know about there was a thriving community of black people that were doing well and folks got yeah. mad and the KKK came out and drugged them out their homes, killed 300 people and not one white person was arrested. Yeah. And they called it the Tulsa riots for years right. until they realized, um, nope, this was a massacre of people. And I'm like, those things are what need to come out now. That's what Alvin's talking about. It's been going on. This racism right. isn't new. We just haven't been talking about it in this fashion where the whole world gets to see it. People know in that community, and that's about it. And I think those things got to come out. And what's interesting, yeah. so here's, and here's one detail that's often missed. And so, like, keep on, you're right. They call it the Tulsa riots. But when you actually go and examine the story for what it's worth, it all came down to a young black man who needed to go to the restroom. The, the only restroom was on, like, the fourth or fifth yep. or sixth floor, something like that. Either way, he had to get on an elevator to go up to use the restroom. They get into an elevator. There's a young white lady who's in the elevator uh, operating the elevator. So she's an elevator operator. She goes to, I guess, um, engage the elevator to go up and the elevator lurches. And I guess in terms of that lurch, it basically, she fell back into the young man's arms. Well, yep. because it lurched and how it lurched, she screamed. Well, when it opened up, you know, it's kind of just one of those moments you're kind of like, oh, shoot, like this, I, I didn't do anything to you. You didn't do anything. This isn't to me. what it looks like. This isn't what it looks like. He takes off running. Well, he took off and he ran. And as he was running out the building, they heard, they basically heard her scream um, again. And then obviously you put two and two together. You go, oh, we heard a young girl scream. And then, you know, moments later, here comes a black guy running out. Well, he had to do something to her, was the story. Um, and she, even the young lady, to her credit, she admitted that nothing happened, but yeah. was coerced by the, by the uh, police to basically say that she, you know, she was uh, molested or, or raped and by the young man. And so when you look at that, you go three, I mean, thousands of people lost their lives behind this. Um, not just uh, the obviously the literal life, but their way of living. 
oh like, yeah gone destroyed i mean there were only yeah. um what was it? It was six black families that were in there. Like I went and did some research on it. It was six black families and they were doing so well that these six black families each owned airplanes. Airplanes, yes. Back then. Dang. That's that's just how well they were doing in life. And so, you know, it, it, and then they also said that, you know, their banks were doing so well that even white people came to get loans from black banks. And so, you know, when you think about, man, they burned this place down, Greenwood down to the ground, um, under the ground, as some people would say. And mm-hmm. it's just saddening that when you look through history, you look through history books, that this is not mentioned. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you get things like that. Well, then you bring it into the, to the 80s or the 90s with the Central Park Five. Um, I'm not yep. going to get into that, but just go Google it for the Central Park Five. And it's so many different stories that are like that, that are just probably sitting out there waiting to be told, but we don't know anything about it because it's not included in history. Yeah. I'm even, I'm, I'm looking right now. There are, there are books about it. Um, There's one called the burning massacre destruction and the Tulsa race riot of 1921, which it, I mean, it says massacre right there. Um, it that one's on Amazon. The Central Park Five, the untold story behind one of New York City's most infamous crimes. The you guys can, I mean, for people that are listening to it, you can go. I'll I'll put the links and stuff um, for you guys to go check those out. But you can do that through Audible, Amazon, whatever. But if we're not going to be taught it through history, then we need to teach ourselves. I think is the um, kind of where the responsibility lands. I know there's a, like the talk that black families share with their kids. I mean, Alvin, you even mentioned that your mom would kind of brief you before you walked in somewhere. Um, But it's different than what I typically think of, of the talk being, you know, that's usually the birds and the bees and how (laughs) mommy met daddy kind of thing. Uh, But for you guys, have you had (laughs) this talk with your kids, not the birds and bees necessarily, but uh, if so, what did you say to them? How did they receive that? Kind of let us in on on what that looks like for you guys as you're talking about this is a lifetime, not a once upon a time situation. How do you communicate that to your kids, especially being that both of you are married to white women and so you have mixed race kids? How do you engage in that conversation with your children? You know, what age? How does that go? That kind of stuff. Man, I'm going to jump in and cut off Alvin. You don't get to go first this time. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Man, it's, it's, it's so interesting because um, in my family growing up, my parents did not, believe it or not, give us the birds and the bees talk. But I definitely knew how to act around police officers and how to act in a store and how to act around every other place because they were going to look at us differently. We all knew, like, you are Black. You cannot get away with the same things your white friends can get away with. And it's sad. The old mantra of working twice as hard to get half as far. We all know it. And we all might hate it, but we all subscribe to it. Horrible. Like, we we sit there like, I just know I have to do more in order to get to that same spot. So now, flash forward with my kids, there is such a tension between, like, how do I protect my kids? And how do I let them know that the world still looks at them a certain way? And this is the hard part because no matter what, 
if you are, let's say 10 years from now, and you're 17 and 19, and you are with a bunch of friends, and they're all white, you stand out. And even my oldest, he's light, like he's light, light. But even then, I'm like, you can't pass. Like, there's no passing. Like, it's obvious that there is black in your, baked into your genes. You are black, and that's how the world sees you. And yet you are also white. So it's hard to kind of navigate between those two worlds of being able to talk to them about these issues. What we decided to do was just, and this is just recently with George Floyd, um, to really let them into what was going on. Like I said, seven, and then my eight-year-old is going to be nine next week. So seven and nine, and they're young. And I thought that it was too young to start talking about this, but it's everywhere. And it's everywhere. Yeah. And I've realized for us, when we were young, like Alvin said five, we, we were talking about it by this point. Like it was part of our lives. Like it, it, me sheltering them does them good only in the sense that, hey, they're not exposed to the world. But then if someone else exposes them to the world, then I'm gonna be in trouble. Exactly. I, can't let, I can't afford to let someone else do that to them. So right now what we do is we make it um, clear that you are black and that's beautiful and that's amazing and your hair is amazing and your skin tone is amazing and these are the things going on in the world and people are fighting and arguing and talking about this but black lives do matter and you matter and we're going to have these conversations and what these police officers did was wrong but not all police officers are wrong and it's very clear that you should not do this and we want good police officers to be out there and not any ones that are gonna cause us any harm. So it's a, it's a hard conversation, but we're starting it now and we're gonna keep it going. One thing I noticed, we just can't stop. I can't think that I can have a conversation today and then be done and not have it again. I'm gonna have to talk about it next week, next month, next year. You just have to keep it going and um, frame it in a good way. Yeah, I think, I think to, to add, you know, to add to that, because I agree with everything that Kiwan is saying, it's it's one of those things of we were, little did we realize we were being introduced to the world at a very, very young age. Um, mm -hmm. And so I agree with, you know, with everything, like we have to keep the conversation going. My boys are the same. Matter of fact, uh, one of one of my sons, my youngest is, uh, you might as well, I mean, to a certain extent, our neighbor calls him the Navy SEAL. Um, the, the boy is a good shot. That's pretty awesome. I mean, he, <laughs> he just loves is, his guns. <laughs> loves his guns, loves his weapons, loves his bow and arrow. You put it in, and he's been that. We have a picture of him um, at the age of two in a diaper, and he's looking down the scope of, of a little BB gun and can hit cans. Can just ready everything. to rock. Now, while that's, that's cute right now, because the world doesn't really deem him um, as a menace, but where that starts to change is somewhere around his teenage years. And yeah. then now I've got a problem on my hands. And so, but that, that, that starts today. And so it's like, you know, we're having to teach him. Um, so like, Hey buddy, listen, I, we cannot allow you to go out in the front yard with those guns. Like we just can't do that. Well, why not? Well, we live in a world that is a different place. Um, I know that that's what you love to do, but the reality is like, we have to begin to teach them about that. And that, and for me, that is a big concern that I have a son who will be ultimately deemed black and, and, and he's not going to get another fair shake. 
And so it's, you know, reading books and my wife um, has done a fabulous job in terms of stocking our um, home with books, uh, books about race, books about um, white people who, who invented things. Um, there, there are stories that I, that I share with them um, just about folks who I've come across who are black who invented, like Garrett Morgan, uh, Garrett A. Morgan, I believe, um, invented the gas mask. He invented the stoplight. And so there are things that once you understand where you come from as a culture, you begin to realize like, well, everything wasn't as white as it's made to be. Um, that black culture had a contributing hand um, in the, into the society, into some of the very things um, that we have grown to come you know, near and dear to and depend on. And that's, again, that's not taught, but that starts, you know, with us. And so that's important. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, 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 do I have to have the talk? I believe that there are certain things that God has placed on my heart of just realizing and seeing that my sons will never have to deal with and they won't be burdened or hassled by certain things. Whereas there are other things that they will be hassled by. Um, and it, and and it's not necessarily them as much of it is as how the world sees their dad. Um, and I so would, it's, a, yeah, so it's just that, that notion. Man, I've, I've thought about your, uh, your youngest son a couple of times because I know he has that love for hunting and he could be in camo and he'd be decked out and he's ready to go shoot. And it's and 130 go, degrees outside. <laughs> yep, and he don't care. But then I've also thought the same thing as you that man, if he's in the front yard, is that the same thing as young Micah being in the front yard carrying around a gun? You know, and I think about yeah. Tamir Rice. Every time right. I see a picture of Tamir Rice, it breaks my heart. Like, I, I can't. So it was, someone was talking about, you know, his birthday the other day and how he would have been 18. And it just, just seeing his face breaks my heart because if you've seen that video, it's under two seconds that the police show up and shoot him. And the person who called 911 said it's probably a toy gun. And it's like, there's this whole, don't call 911 if you think it's a toy gun. And if you saw a little white kid roaming around, which I've seen playing whatever game they're playing with their guns, is do you call the cops for that? And that breaks my heart because your son should be able to have that gun and not have a problem. He should be able to do those same things. How do we make it so that everyone sees other people, other groups as equal and afford them the same um, respect. They afford them the same. What's what I'm looking for? Um, dang, it just dropped out of my head. Opportunity or? Yeah. Um, when you assume the same assumption, you know, that, right. that you would give anyone else. Yeah. Like that, it doesn't make a difference what his skin color is. That little boy can play with his toy gun. That's fine. But we don't do that. And I think we, that's what we're digging deeper down into. And that's what it really gets into. How do we change? the way that things are looked at in this country. And it's, it's hard. It's multifaceted. There's so many layers to it. It's individual and it's systemic. Like there's, there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. That implicit bias. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even as you're talking about the, the toy guns and stuff like that, for me, I think of, um, so I've, I've mentioned this, I think on the, the podcast, if I haven't here, it is. I, I grew up in a cul-de-sac where, uh, if you're, if you're facing my front door, I can still drive. It's in Austin. So I can drive over to it, you know, 15 minutes from here. But if you face my front door, the home to the right 
were first generation immigrants from Ghana, Africa, and I was best friends with their son, Stephen. And then on the left, they're second generation uh, Latino or Hispanic family. Um, and I apologize if one of those, you know, descriptors uh, offend somebody. I don't, I can't remember which one is the offensive or the regular one. Um, but there, I know Kevon's laughing at me right now. I'm trying guys. I'm trying, but, <laughs> um, but either way, I grew up with neighbors that, that literally were, didn't look anything like me, you know? And uh, as you're talking about toy guns, I vividly remember a Christmas where uh, the Adai's got Steven and uh, my parents, they, they went in together, got us the laser tag systems, like the old school, you know, little gray black with the orange tip, all that kind of stuff. Nice. And we would chase each other around in the front yard and we'd just be running around literally shooting at each other. It's laser tag, but we were shooting at each other, pointing guns at each other and acting like we're getting shot, you know, cause we're little kids and we're like, Oh, I can't, Oh, you know, falling to the ground and stuff. <laughs> and I'm just thinking how, it never even crossed my mind that there was anything wrong with what we were doing. And we were older than, you know, three or four years old. We were like eight or something, seven or eight, somewhere in there. So I, I just think it baffles me that, the, and that's, I don't know, I, there's a lot of different directions to see it all go. But I, I just think that the, the idea of a kid who, like you said, the call even being made was he probably has a toy gun. Like it's probably a toy and yet there's still that officer had some sort of either lack of training had something going on in his mind already that he was playing out a scenario like i that that's to me what i've talked about where there are extremes of course but for the majority of us we're like no we're not anti-cop we're anti that situation happening again that should not happen again period how does it make you feel when other black people say things like well, the first step is to getting rid of racism is to stop talking about it. I know I have friends that have posted the meme with, uh, oh my gosh, he was God and Bruce Almighty. Um, he was in Jim Carrey. I am blanking. No, on my, Morgan no. Freeman. No, Morgan, Morgan Freeman. Freeman. Yes, Morgan yeah, Goodness gracious. God, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, he plays God. He, uh, he's got that soothing voice. But they post <laughs> the meme with his little quote of like, well, the first thing is to stop talking about it. You, you'll be a man i'll be a man and and that's fine so to to you guys since you're on the this episode you're the ones being interviewed how, how does it make you feel when even other black people are saying that i think it i mean to a certain extent it's it's a matter for me of of really asking if that's the case if we're going to stop talking about it then you know, for that person, whatever comes, you can't say anything about it, you know? So if, if they, if that, if that's the stance that you want to take, then if you go on and live your life and other people treat you less than because, or treat you worse, or, uh, you know, mistreat you in some way because of the color of your skin, shut up. I don't want to hear about it. Don't cry about it. Don't do it. You know, that's where <laughs> I stand. when you come to me with that, that's a good point. <laughs> because, because the reality is this, I'm like, you can't God, have it both ways kind of thing. I didn't stand in line to get this paint job. I didn't. I didn't choose it. But guess what? It was chosen for me. So if God chose it for me, there must be a reason for it. And if he doesn't ignore it, then who are we to ignore it? Now, that being said, it's, it's I look at racism and I go, racism at, at the end of the day is about sin. 
And if we look at the undertone of racism, it's really fear. That's really what it is. It's a fear. It's a fear of being inferior to some other person because of the color of their skin. That's mm-hmm. it. And it's sad to think that, you know, it's like, well, no, I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. But how much better could we be together? Mm. That's not a thought. It's a thought of, well, that person, especially if you start looking at it from slavery. So, like, I give you this example. Slavery still exists today. It's just really subtle. You just don't really see it. So, for instance, and this is my example, and I look look at sports, especially basketball and football. If you look from top down to the bottom, 80, 85% of the players are black. Well, let's start looking up through the ranks. Now, that's why you got things like the Rooney Rule. So where you have to hire minorities or a certain number of minorities. So you got to start hitting quotas. Well, if you look across like ownership, there are no black owners. Well, then you get one and it's like, well, there's Michael Jordan. It's one. One of you, that's enough. It's like, well, no, 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 no. So a lot of people are like, well, how do you consider that slavery? These people are getting paid millions of dollars. And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what you want us to buy the line on. You want me to buy the line that they're making. They, they're not being harmed. They're not being, um, in comparison to, you know, actual slavery. Oh, they've got it made. That's what you want me to buy into. But the reality is, think about the draft for a minute. Think about the combine. Go there. Go there. Yeah, the combine. I mean, mean, think about this. We're looking at men based upon height, on strength. That's how slaves were determined. How how many bags of cotton can you carry? Okay, well, what's your what how fast can he run? How high can he jump? Run, jump for me in your underwear so we can see. Right. That's how slaves were chosen. And so I, so that's where the education comes in to, it's like, no, I can't stop talking about racism and I can't talk, and I have to talk more about the subtleness of all of it, of the yeah. NBA, of the NFL. I applaud uh, Goodell for coming out and apologizing about Kaepernick, but let's talk about getting a man a job. For real. Let, let, let's talk about getting, let's talk about getting minorities into ownership roles. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate your apology, but let's really start talking about actual change. I've, and so for I've, me, that's where, when, when people say, Hey, let's stop talking about racism. Like I go, if we're going to do that, we might as well debunk the entire society and economy we've ever known, like all the way back down to the foundation in which it was built on. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Michael Brown podcast today. This episode is just one of many. I know it will be a continuing conversation with Alvin and Kivon. Even what you just listened to is not the full interview that we had. The full interview was a total of about three hours. So we are chopping that up into multiple episodes and we will even then still probably have to get um, them back on for for more content to have. We had a, I had a whole list of like 
I think two or three sheets worth of questions uh, just to talk to them and, and ha- pick their brain of how they view the world and how they view the situations we're going through. That being said, I hope that what you heard today is encouraging to you. Uh, I will make sure that resources are well documented on my Facebook profile, on the the Instagram, Twitter, everything, so that you have access to any books that we've mentioned. Don't forget that you can get your free Audible trial, the 30-day Audible trial. And if a book is mentioned here that you want to start just cramming into your brain and, and getting more information, more knowledge, that sort of thing, Don't forget about that. Don't miss out on that. That's a good, easy way to at least crank out one of the books that have been mentioned on this show, this interview. And last but not least, if there are books that we have recommended, I will try to get you the Amazon links so you can go directly to that page. That's a great way to support this podcast to continue to get better. I do want to get back to posting videos, but not having a webcam can make that a very convoluted process. So supporting the podcast would allow me to then get a webcam to then produce a better product for you guys and make sure that y'all are well connected and seeing everything and hearing everything just perfectly. That's about it I have for you today. I look forward to the next episode. Y'all take care.